<laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, so I got a fan crew over here. Uh, if you don't know, I am not only here as a church plant resident, as I, while I'm here, I'm also working uh, in the areas of the internship, college ministry there. So the, the loud voices you just heard, those are my people. They're like my kids. When we moved here, we inherited like 16 of them. We're like, what do we do with this? So, um, hey, but today is a special day, not just because I'm preaching, but because it marks eight months to the day that me and my dad and a two of my best friends loaded up two cars, a 2012 Ford Focus and a 2004 Honda Odyssey that we really didn't know was going to make it much longer. But we we're like, let's do it. We took those cars and we traveled 400 miles east all the way from Las Vegas to Kansas City, Missouri to become a part of a church that we were pretty confident existed, but we had not yet met the pastor of or been able to really come visit because of COVID. And our only sole connection was when we decided we we're going to come out here for seminary and kind of use this season to discern God's leading in our life. I asked my former pastor, my father-in-law, I said, do you know of any good churches in Kansas City? And he said, I know of one, Journey Church International with Christian Newsom. I said, his name's Christian. Like him already. So that was kind of all we knew. We talked once and then we got here like two days after we landed. We got into a house we hadn't met, we haven't seen yet, but we had no choice to move into because we were there. And the next day after we moved in on a Friday, Saturday night, Christian Danielle came and we we're kind of like, hey, <laughs> here we are. We're doing it. Uh, but man, eight months in, and I just know for a fact that God's hand has been over this completely. I mean, I came out here with a lot of questions. Um, but I, I often complain a lot because I came out here excited to kind of see what's going to be like to, to uplift my life out of the place I've lived my whole life, come here somewhere else with no one that we know, no connections. You know, like with my marriage, like I'm excited to like wrestle with it, like have drama, tension, like what do we do when no one's around? But Journey, I, I complain, is that they made it way too easy on us. Like we got here and they just immediately welcomed us with open arms, with a community. I mean, it, it's been like ridiculous. Like I'm annoyed. I'm like, I wanted to grow and I feel like you guys are coddling me, but Hey, no complaints, no complaints. We're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about vision month. We're kicking off vision month here at journey, talking about some big things that we think God has called us to as a church, the building next door. We're excited to get in and to be in all that areas and see what ministry we can do. But it's really just a stepping stone to what we think God's called us to, which is one of those things is church planting. We got a vision in the next 24 years or so by 2045 to plant at least 20 churches out of our church. I say at least because who knows what God can do. So hopefully it's 20, but maybe it's going to be even more than that. And I want to give you some reasons behind why we're passionate about that. Before we dive in, I just want to give you a little bit of the why. And one of the big reasons is pretty clear is because we take Jesus' commands seriously. And the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, at the end of it, he gives a great commission. He tells him that his disciples, go make disciples of all nations. And then in Acts 1.8, before he leaves them, he tells his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the early church knew from the very beginning, it was never just about your local context. It wasn't just about the area you lived in, but the whole mission of the church was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the way that that's been done uh, most of the time is by planting new churches, starting new churches in different places, and then having those churches start new churches. So that's a clear reason. We take that seriously. We think it's a big deal. We want to be a part of the mission that God's called us to. So we're going to plant churches. But the second reason is more practical. And that's the fact that there's more churches closing their doors each year than opening them. Or there's more churches closing than keeping their doors open every year. Statistically, that's just what's happening right now. 
Dr. Tim Keller, someone that we, we often talk about here, who's like a genius, he's like a spiritual Yoda. He wrote a book in 2020 called How to Reach the West Again. And that book is kind of talking about the reason why we're, we're struggling as churches right now, why there's a decline is because the culture we're in is becoming increasingly more hostile to our faith. So he literally released this book March 10th of 2020, which is like the worst time to do anything because that's when the world shut down. But nonetheless, it's like a 60-page book. You can download it for free legally online or you can buy it for a couple bucks. It's an incredible read, but he's talking about this very thing. And this is what he says. In the very beginning, he says this, the overall decline of Christian influence in the West is inarguable. Each generation is becoming less religious and less Christian. More than two-thirds of the churches in the United States have plateaued or in decline. While religion was broadly seen as a social good or at least benign, increasing numbers of people now see the church as bad for people and a major obstacle to social progress. Here's a big one. Traditional Christian beliefs about sexuality and gender are being viewed as dangerous and restrictive of people's basic civil rights. Today, churches in Western society have to deal with something they have never faced before. A culture increasingly hostile to their faith that is not merely non-Christian, such as India, China, Middle Eastern countries, but post-Christian. And when he uses that term post-Christian, he's really describing what he just said. It's a culture that is no longer for Christianity, no longer sees it as a neutral thing, but it's actually the problem. They're rising up against it. They're saying, we're over this. The Christian thing is over. We want to move past it. We don't need it anymore. It's the problem. And that causes some issue. That makes it difficult to be the church in America right now in the Western culture. But we don't think the answer to that is to stop planting churches. We think the answer is to plant even more churches. But not just any kind, we want to plant the right kind, the gospel-centered, Bible-teaching churches to do what Tim Keller says we need to be, have a faithful presence of the church doing what Jesus called us to do, reach people with the gospel. That's what we think we need to do. You hear that and you say, amen, like, I'm with you. I'm, I want to be a part of that. I'm happy our church is doing it. That's great. Like, I, that is fantastic news. What does that have to do with me today? And I'd say this. The reality is we can only reproduce what we are. So if we want to plant churches that are going to get our DNA and going to accomplish the mission of God, then we need to be the church today that we want to plant tomorrow and the years to come. To have residency to come, to have people come and get the DNA of journey and plant like-minded churches. Well, if we want that to happen, we got to be the kind of church we want that to be. And I think Paul in Acts 17 can kind of give us some tips on how to do that. So if you want to go ahead, flip over in your Bibles to Acts 17. We're going to be in verses 16 through 33. And while you're getting there, let me give you some context of what we're going to be reading. Paul is one of the greatest missionaries and church planners of the early church. He did a lot of that. We read a lot of it in the book of Acts. This right now, in this passage, he's on his secondary missionary journey, which was usually for the purpose of strengthening existing churches and planting new ones. But actually, he just came from a place uh, called Berea. He got kicked out of that place. He was preaching to Jews about Jesus. They didn't like it. The crowd got stirred up. So he told his, his ministry partners at the time with him, Timothy and Silas, he said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to Athens. All right, in a couple days, link back up with me, and we'll continue on our journey. So he actually had to take a detour because things got a little too hostile. And this is widely considered one of the greatest passages looking at Paul's ministry of him ministering to a Gentile area, meaning a non-Jewish place, a place pretty hostile to the Christian faith. And I think there's some things that we can learn about it. Before we read, as we always do, would you pray with me as we ask God to open up our hearts and focus our minds? With our eyes closed and heads bowed, I just, in your seat, ask the Lord to, to focus your attention in this moment right now. There's a million things outside of these walls that you could be thinking of, 
doing, handling. There's issues. I don't know what the things you've come from this week. It may have been a horrible week. It may have been a good week. Regardless, just ask God right now to let this be a holy moment to tune in. Ask him to speak to you today through his word. To remove anything that would get in the way of you receiving what he has for you today. Father, we need you. We need you today to understand what you have for us today, to hear your word, to apply it to our lives. God, help us to take what we learned today from Paul's life, to live it out so that we can be the church of tomorrow, so we can carry on the mission you've given us. We ask you to do that, Lord, to speak clearly through me, to handle your word well, to encourage and build up the church. Thank you for the, the freedom that we have right now to gather as a church, God. I pray you be with us today. We love you. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, verse 16. Let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's Timothy and Silas, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, I'll talk about them in a second, began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Areopagus was like a council-like area where they would go and hash out new ideas in Athens, where they said to him, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. There's not much different today than 2,000 years ago. Everyone wants to gossip and knows what's going on. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around to look carefully at the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's quoting right there Greek philosophers. That's not scripture. That's actually the things that they'd be saying in their day. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. I know it's a lot there, but I want to give you the full scope of what Paul does so we can reference it and learn some things that he did. I think there's particularly two things that we see Paul have or do or be that we need to be today to engage our culture, to be the church today that we want to plant tomorrow. So two things that we need to do from Paul's life to be the church of tomorrow. The first one is we got to be prepared. We got to be prepared. If you look at the first few verses, 17 through 
19, you see Paul do a few different things. You see him reasoning in the synagogue. You see him debating with the Epicurean Stoic philosophers. You see them asking about the things that he's teaching. He's preaching them something new. What I love about Paul is that he's able to really encounter and interact with anyone. He's on, on one hand, he's got Jews. On the other hand, he has God-fearing Greeks. And then in front of him, he's got these Greek philosophers. So it's not just one group of people, but he's able to interact with all of them. And what he's doing is something that I think we're going to have to do more as a church. What he masterfully does is he takes their worldviews of those days and he shows them why they fall short of the gospel. Like in his sermon, he talks about, he's quoting the Greek philosophers that you think that we move in the being of God, that we come from some divine being. He's like, you're close. You're close. This is actually the truth. I have to assume when he's reasoning with the philosophers, the Epicurean Stoics, they're not much different than us today in our culture. Epicureans believe, they taught that the purpose of life was pleasure, freedom from pain and anything that would be harmful to them. So anything that was fearful, painful, that's not what life's about. It's all about pursuing pleasure. Stoics believed that we need to rely more on our own reason, that we would dictate a little bit more of what life meant to us, what the purpose was, and how to live life. So on one hand, you have self-sufficiency, rely on your own self. You determine what truth is. The other hand, you have pursue pleasure at all costs. The point of life is to be happy. I don't know a better way to describe the mainstream culture that we live in that says, do you, I'm going to do me, live your truth, like pursue happiness at all costs. Don't let anyone get in, in your way. If they do, they're the worst person in the world. Like that's the highest crime. Don't stop me from pursuing what I want to do as long as I'm not hurting other people. So Paul's interacting with people with pretty similar kind of mindsets even 2,000 years ago. But he's able to take what they're saying, what they're believing, and he's able to show them why the gospel is actually the answer. He's encountering them and he's engaging with them. And we got to be like that. You ask why? Because there's two spiritualities in this text that are still at play today. The first one is this, that the world is filled with idols. The world is filled with idols. The first thing Paul saw in Athens was the city full of them. There's things in our day, hundreds and millions of things that are vying for the attention and loyalty of you and me. There is things around us that people are trying to sell people on of how to live life. Whether it's a different religion or just some quippy kind of way to live life that they see on Instagram, there's a million things, a million idols in the world. And that's important because the second thing is true. People are searching for God whether they know it or not. Verse 27. Paul says that God put people where they are so that they might search and find him. The reality is that every human being made in the image of God has this God-sized hole in their heart. And they're looking to fill it. And when there's a world filled of idols, there's a lot of things they can stuff that hole with that isn't the answer but can definitely lead them away from the one true God. And what we need to know is that we're called to be the people, to go to where they are, to help them see that the things they're believing, the way they're living their life isn't the answer. It's the gospel. Those idols will fail. Jesus will not. But we can only do that if we're like Paul, if we're prepared to do it. If we can step in the environment and start engaging with people, reasoning them with them, debating with them, trying to teach them a new way. So how can we be prepared? Two things I think that we can become to be prepared. The first one is we got to become people of the book. We got to become people of the book. Talking about culture today, this point is really important because I think if you look out into the world, what you see is that there's a, a direction that we are going with people outside and inside the church that is constantly trying to undermine the Bible. Outside the church, it's clear. They don't like the Bible. It's old. It's outdated. It's oppressive. It has harmful things in it. Throw it out the window. We don't need it. Fine. 
We shouldn't expect people who don't follow Jesus to like the Bible. That's okay. But then there's people inside the church who under the pressure of society are folding and they're compromising in the faith. And instead of having a high view of the Bible, we've always believed what the Bible teaches us about it. They are having a lower view of saying, it's not actually the word of God. It's not actually inerrant. It's full of errors, actually. Like we actually can't trust some things, but there's some good in it. Mostly the stuff about Jesus. Mostly the stuff Jesus said about loving people. Like, you know, all the Barney stuff about loving people and being nice and comfy. Like that stuff about Jesus we love. And that's what we need to learn is to love people. Let them be them. And that's what love means. So they, we have people outside inside the church that are folding, that are trying to have a lower view of the Bible. But the reality is the message isn't the issue. They think that's the issue of our culture. We got to change the message to reach the people. But Preston Sprinkle, pastor and author Preston Sprinkle in his book, he actually made a really interesting observation about Jesus' ministry. He said this, Jesus was able to preach hard-hitting, biblically saturated, ethically demanding sermons. And yet sinners and tax collectors were drawn to the presence of Christ. You read the Bible, you read the Gospels, you look at Jesus' life. He wasn't a man that told people what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. The message, the teaching is not the issue. In our day, I'd probably say it's the messenger that's the issue. It's the way we communicate truth, not so much the truth itself. Which the Gospel of John would tell us that Jesus came in two things, in grace and truth. And not the expense of either or. He didn't just, he wasn't overly graceful, but he also wasn't overly truthful. He didn't brutalize people. He also didn't enable people. But he had both grace and truth. And that's what we need to be today. We need to have a worldview that isn't constructed by anything else other than the word of God. I'm particularly passionate about this because of my background. I come from a nominal Christian family, meaning one that would have the banner of Christianity, but really couldn't say they were living the Christian life. Most of my family today aren't believers of Jesus. They would agree with that. That's just the reality of what it is. But eventually my dad, he would come to know Jesus, start following him around the time he was 50. Sorry, dad. Um, and had a major life turnaround. That eventually would domino effect to me that by the time I'm 18, getting out of high school, I would then follow Jesus, get plugged into a Bible teaching gospel centered church. And then I'd realize like, man, we're missing out on real life. Like it's actually contrary to popular belief the fullest life we can live is one within the guidelines of the Bible, not outside of that. I fully believe that because I've experienced it. But our world wants to say, no, 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 it's not that we want freedom. But the reality is, this is how we're supposed to live. God knows how we're supposed to live. He's not trying to hold back some fun or joy from us. He wants us to have the fullest life possible. And that's found within his book. It's found within the Bible. And I believe this particularly because of what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. The same guy that's here in Acts 17 eventually would plant a church in Ephesus. He would go on and he would write a letter to that church and give them some instructions and kind of edify them. This is what he said to them in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What's this text saying? Well, obviously, it's saying that it is by grace we've been saved. That's the gospel, right? Like you and me do not earn favor with God based off how good we are. That's not how the gospel works. We bring nothing to the table. He brought everything to the table. Because of Jesus, we can now be saved. That is the beauty of the gospel. But he saved us for a purpose. It says he saved us so that we are his handiwork. We've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which means that when God saved you, he didn't save you just for you to come to church on Sundays or to get in a small group once a week. He wants you to get in the game. 
He wants you to actually, if I could say, that doesn't sound very theological, do stuff. (laughs) That's what he saved you to do, to do good works. But I think a lot of times we don't feel like we are qualified or prepared to do that. And so we kind of settle for what God might be calling us to do. We, we probably disqualify ourselves from the beginning of like, I couldn't really be used like that. I couldn't be like Paul. Like I'm not a person that's going to go and reason and like debate with people. I think we think of it as if like Brett Veach called me right now and said, look, Christian, we need a starting linebacker for this weekend's game. I've heard good things about you. I want you to come on the team. <laughs> I feel like, first off, thank you. Second of all, have you seen me? Like not a linebacker. A, B, do not know how to play the position. More importantly, A is important. Look at my body. Right? Like we think it's like that crazy that God could use us because we're not qualified. We're not prepared. So how can we fix that? Well, Paul would write another letter. He'd write a letter to the leader of the church of Ephesus who actually would be Timothy. He was with him right now. Eventually, Timothy would lead that church in Ephesus. He'd write a letter to him, one of the last ones that we have in our Bible called First and Second Timothy. Look what he said in Second Timothy 3. That all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I would circle every good work right there, underline it, highlight it, take a picture of it, send it to your family, whatever you can. I would burn that into your brain to realize what this is saying. First off, that the phrase every good work, same words used in the Greek in Ephesians 2, that we are creating Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul's really talking about the same thing. But what I personally love here is that phrase thoroughly equipped could be translated complete or sufficient. Or what I like to say, or I like my favorite is completely qualified. Which means this, here's the point. The best way to prepare for what God has created you to do is to be shaped, trained, and filled by his word. That's how he's designed it to be. There's not a replacement. There's not a different way to go about it. The word of God is how he has decided that I'm going to equip my people to do what I've created them to do. We think the message is the issue. The world thinks the message is the issue. We need to be more more relevant. Paul wasn't relevant. Paul, what he did was something called contextualize the message of the gospel, meaning this, he took it to them and he said, let me place this over your life and show you where you're close, where you're wrong and where this is going to lead you. Relevance is having the culture come into our lives and looking more like the world than we look like Jesus. What the American church, I think, has proven is that isn't the issue. That's not what we need to do. We got to be people of the book who know how to use the book. You say to me, well, that's great. I don't know how to read it. I don't know how to study it. I could read the Gospels. I start reading Leviticus. I start crying. Like, I don't know (laughs) what to do with this thing. (laughs) Do I have to read this? Listen, I got... We got you, okay? Because it's one thing to be people of the book, but the second thing we got to be is become people of the teacher. We got to become people of the teacher. It's one thing to know truth. It's a different thing to have it practiced and lived. This is moving from someone who knows the Bible to who's a disciple of Jesus. Jesus would say in one of the Gospels that a student is not above his teacher, but when a student is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. I think that is the purest form of discipleship, that we would become like Jesus in everything that we do. The Christian life is you and me becoming more like Jesus so he can live today just like he lived back then. That right there is Christianity in a nutshell. The more we look like Jesus, the better we are. The way we do that is we read his word, we study, and he crafts us more in his image. Ephesians 4 would tell us that the church's job is to equip the saints, the church, for the work of ministry. How are we going to do that? How are we going to become more like the teacher? Disciple tracks. One of the first meetings I was a part of here in, in Journey was in January. 
After a Saturday morning of prayer, I got to meet with a few people, got thrown in a room with a bunch of volunteers, and Pastor Christian kind of cast a new vision for what the church was going to be doing heading into the future. Ten years of awesome faithfulness of God. Now we're going to a different chapter. What's going to carry our church to prepare them for what God has them to do? This is what came out of it. This is going to, in our mind, prepare our people the best way to do what God has created them to do. The scripture track is something that you've already heard of. It's going to help you have a biblical worldview. That's going to help you study and read the Bible and understand it, why we have certain books, all those things. But the Jesus track is going to be the life of your spiritual life. Jesus said, apart from him, we can do a whole lot of nothing. So we got to learn how to walk with Jesus daily. The life track is going to be taking those principles we learn in scripture and applying them to everyday life, to the seasons of life. When things go bad, what do I do? How do I use scripture in that area, you'll find our care groups, Life Center, Divorce Care, Suburb Recovery, Financial Peace. We had a meeting actually this last Monday, me and Pastor Mike, with a few of those leaders. And what I loved is hearing their stories. We went around the table and just shared their stories. And every single one of them has a story of their brokenness, coming from a place of brokenness, finding the hope of the gospel. And now what used to be their greatest shame is their greatest tool at administering to people. If you're someone who's broken, you're going through a tough place, you're going to live in the life track for a little bit. They got some people in there that would love to talk with you and minister to you. Leadership track is the one where we're going to help build disciple makers. At some level, every disciple of Jesus should be making a disciple of Jesus. That sounds scary and intimidating. It's really not. It's just doing life with someone else, showing them how to walk like Jesus did. Study the Bible together. Figure it out as you go. And that track, you're going to be equipped to do that. How to ask good questions. How to meet with people. How to share the gospel. Like, what do I do in those situations? We want you to feel equipped and prepared to do what we believe God's called you to do. I believe in your inserts when you got here, your bulletin had an insert here that you could sign up for our discipleship tracks. All you got to do is look at them, pick one, put your name, email, phone number, and that will help you get registered. I would encourage you. If you're hearing these stuff and you're like, yeah, that ain't me, I would say an easy next step for you would be our discipleship tracks. They start next week. You can sign up today and be a part of them. Get in there, fill it out to get to our next step center, give it to them. You'll be good to go. But I think and I believe that if we do these things, this four-year process here, we'll become prepared. We'll be able to do what Paul did, which is engage the culture with the gospel. That's the first thing we see that he did. The second thing that we see Paul do, uh, is that we need to be, as we need to be personal. Got to be prepared, but that won't matter if we're not personal. If you look here in verse 16 and 17, Paul was waiting for the Athens. He was greatly distressed to see the city full of idols. So what happened? He reasoned in the synagogue. He went to the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. What did Paul do? He went to where the people were. He went to where they were. He drew near to them so that he could engage the people. Paul had what I think two things that we all need to have, the heart and eyes of Jesus. He had the eyes and heart of Jesus. What do you mean by that? The first thing he did was he saw the condition of the city. He saw the spiritual brokenness of Athens. He was able to recognize the people. It was filled with idols. They were searching and that it was broken. But the second thing that he saw was that he was distressed by it. He saw, the, he saw that it was broken. It moved him, provoked him to be engaged. Not only did he have the eyes to see brokenness, that's one thing, but he was broken over by the things that he saw. It was just like Jesus. In Matthew 9, you see Jesus see the crowds following him. And he says that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion because he saw they're searching. They're broken. They need someone to guide them. But then he was moved with compassion. He had the heart and eyes of Jesus. 
Remember, everyone in our world today, two things. world's full of idols, and they're searching. It's one thing to be able to engage people and to show them what they're believing isn't going to pan out for them. But it doesn't matter if we aren't near them, if we don't draw close to them and engage them with the gospel. So we have to be personal. We've got to be personal like Paul. You ask, how can we do that? I think there's two ways we can live that will help us do that. The first one is to live on mission. We've got to live on mission. I think I say the word mission and we all feel the same sense of kind of like, ooh, this is something I don't know if I'm made for. I think there's kind of a stigma in the church that mission and living on mission is something for like the superstars of the church, right? Like Paul is a superstar. He's obviously doing it well. Planting churches, going on missionary journeys, like let him do that. I'm going to come to my church on Sundays. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to be a good person. I'll be good. Like I'll be a part of the church as a whole. But the reality is I learned recently studying church history this past year that that's not how it has always been. Actually, I don't think it's ever been that way. Let me take you to seminary with me free of charge. I want to read you a quote from a book I read last week about this very thing. This is Justo Gonzalez. Look what he says. In truth, most missionary work was not carried out by the apostles, but rather by the countless and nameless Christians who for different reasons, persecution, business, missionary calling, traveled from place to place taking the news of the gospel with them. That's how the church did it. The church didn't explode because they had some all-stars, Peter and Paul doing all the work. It exploded because everyone in the church embraced the calling of Jesus. And whether it was for their job or vacation, or they were just felt led by the Lord, they would take the gospel to wherever they could go. As much as I want to say that you can leave it up to the professionals, to church staff to do all the work, that's never how Jesus intended the church to work. And the reality is you have opportunities. You have areas of influence. You know people and have access to them that me or Pastor Christian or anyone else will never see. We don't have. And we have to start seeing that as a church, as a great opportunity and privilege. That's what it means to live on mission. Remember last week, Pastor Christian closed out his sermon talking about this reality that our culture is heading in a way that it's rejecting organized religion. It doesn't like church. Church buildings to them are bad. And they're pushing away. They're not going to go there. But they may have not rejected you. And I think we have to embrace that movement going forward that in order for the gospel to spread, it's not going to be primarily through Sunday service. It's going to be primarily through relationships that we have. People are going to come to church. Like Since the beginning of the church, they've always had unbelievers come and be a part of it. Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 14, don't be weird. People got to come and see you guys. <laughs> All right? That's always going to happen. But I think they have to know someone to be invited in. They're probably going to have to like you to do that. Paul said something in verses 26 to 27 that I found really interesting. He said, For one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. What does that mean? That means that you are living where you're living today for a purpose, not by chance. Where you are today was guided by God's hand. Why did he do that? Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Now, there's no question here. Paul's talking about a theological term of God's omnipresence being he's everywhere at once. There's not a place God isn't right now. He's here. He's outside. Like he's, he's everywhere. That is what Paul's saying. He's not actually that far from us. He's everywhere. But what if there's a different way that we thought about this? I think there's a way we can think about this that would be helpful in how we view our lives and what God has put in our lives. 
We know from 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are now Christ's ambassadors. God's making his appeal through us primarily. That's how the gospel spreads through us. We also know that the, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. When we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we get saved. One of the things that he does is he gives us the Holy Spirit of God. So we're walking around with God with us, literally within us. We are his ambassadors. What's your point? My point is this. What if people who are far from God aren't actually far from him, not just because God is everywhere, but because they're close to you? What if we thought of it in that way? Like there's people out there that will never step foot in this building. Probably not for a very long time, but you rub shoulders with them nine to five, Monday through Friday. You see them mow their lawn every Saturday. You know your barista by name by now. What if we saw the relationships that God has put in our lives as opportunities for the gospel? That those who are far from him aren't actually that far because they're close to you. Think about it. Ask yourself this question. Who is far from God but close to you? Who are those names that pop up in your head? The people you work with, your neighbors. I believe God has put you there for a purpose, for you to be the ambassador, for you to be near to them. It sounds intimidating. Like you're you're thinking like, I want you to go up to them tomorrow and be like, can I share the gospel with you? No, no. I want you just to get to know them. Like what if you started to see the relationship that you could build with them as a bridge to something later, as giving them a way, just get to know a Christian face to face, to do life with them, to invite them into your home. Because the reality is we got to live on mission. But before we even get to share the gospel, I think we have to first live out the gospel which is the second thing. We got to live on mission. We also have to live out the gospel. I'm really not sure where this statement came from, but it's something that shaped my life as a Christian. It's shaped the way I do ministry. It's that the gospel leaves no area of our lives untouched. When Jesus saves us, he wants to change us from the inside out. Jesus told us in Matthew 5 that we were the light of the world. Paul would write later to a church in Philippi and tell him that you're supposed to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness. That is what Jesus wants you to do is become a light, a beacon of hope to the world. I had a a personal experience of this just a few weeks ago. Like I said, my family, most of them don't know Jesus, don't follow him. And they know that, they know who I am. I'm the baby of five total kids. So it's me and then three sisters, God help me, and then an older brother. My older brother's name is Adam. We're 15 years apart. We grew close in high school, kind of drifted after I graduated, come back together. I was actually able to marry him and his wife uh, two years ago this week. They have a little girl together. They're awesome. Love them. He he knows where I stand with Jesus. He knows where I want him to stand with Jesus. He's more of like an agnostic kind of spiritual type guy, but by no means like a religious person. He texted me a few weeks ago when I was in San Diego with my family-in-law and just said, hey, man, if you could pray for me, I'm going through a tough time. I was like, okay, um, that's a big deal. So I said, absolutely. When I get back in town, let's talk. So two weeks ago, me and Hannah are on FaceTime with him and his wife. We're talking about life, what they're going through, sharing with us kind of the things that they were dealing with. And he said a couple things that really stood out to me that really humbled me. He said, outside of me being his brother and wanting to reach out to family during a difficult time, He said that I know your faith, which you believe, isn't some bogus belief, but you really believe it. I was like, well, that's really, thank you. But then he said this, the light that you have in your life, I could really use that right now. 
And that was humbling to me because I know that whatever my brother is seeing is not me. He's seen Jesus. He's seen the work that he's done over the years in my life. And for him to see that, that we won't have many like Jesus conversations. He doesn't see me as like pastor Christian. He just knows me as a little bro. But what he knows about little bro is that there's something different about his life. There's a light in him. And when life got dark, he wanted to go to little brother. Here's the point. We can't expect the gospel to make a difference in the world if it hasn't made a difference in us first. Live on mission all you want. Be around all the lost people in the world. It won't make a difference if there's not a difference in our lives. If there's nothing distinct in the way that we lead our lives, if they don't see the light in us. I firmly believe people are skeptical of Christianity today, not not because they disagree with what we believe, but because the way we live doesn't line up with what we believe. So if it's not real to us, why should it be real to them? And here's what I can promise you that you already know. In life, relationships get strained. Things break. Tragedy strikes. Life happens. And it's those moments that people become more open to asking questions, to having conversations, to seeking out something they didn't seek out before. The question that we need to answer is, if that happened to someone who's far from God in your life, that happens to them tomorrow, would they have seen the light in your life to come look for you? Would they think to come talk to you? Would there be such a difference in the way you live your life that they would think they might have something? That's what it means to live out the gospel, to show the world that what we believe is real. First in us, then hopefully in them. When we put it all together, this is what we have. To be the church of tomorrow, we got to be prepared and personal. We got to be prepared, become people of the book and of the teacher. Got to know what the word says. Got to know how to use it. Got to live like Jesus. But that won't matter if we're not living on mission. If we don't go to the people, we don't use the relationships in our lives. If we don't think of those who are far from God but close to us to engage them with the gospel, they won't really matter. But that won't even matter if we don't live out the gospel. If there's nothing different in our lives to even open up those conversations when life goes awry. Really what this is going to produce, what this is going to do, it might sound familiar, but I think it's going to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians, make a difference in the world. It's going to accomplish the mission of our church. And if people can come here and be a part of this church, go plant churches like that, I think we're going to be okay. If we're prepared and personal, I think we're going to be okay. In fact, I know we are. At the end of his book, How to Reach the West Again, Tim Keller has a quote where he kind of pulls it all together. It can be a little grim talking about the cultural decline of America and the church, but look at how he ends his book. He says, there's never been a fast-growing revival in the post-Christian secular society, but every great new thing is unprecedented until it happens. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's no reason to believe this promise has an expiration date. We got 2,000 years of God's faithfulness to the church. We're going to be fine. But I believe he's calling us to get engaged in a movement that he wants to see take place in a place that has not taken place before. Of fresh churches who preach the gospel, who take it to where people are, to engage them with it, to see revival. The question isn't, is the church going to be okay? Are we going to survive? Yes. No doubt. Jesus is going to win. 
the question we have to wrestle with today is, are we going to play our part? Are we going to get in? Are we going to step out into what God's calling us to be a part of? What he created us to do? Are we going to reach that God-given potential that he's calling us to leverage? That's the question. Let's pray. Eyes closed, heads bowed. Lot to take in. Lot to do. But church, I really am confident that we're going to be okay. If we're prepared and personal. I think the mission is going to be completed. There's a couple of groups of people I want to talk to today. The first for the Christians. I just want to ask you, what's your part? As you're thinking through this, as you're thinking through your life, how has God made you? What has he given you a passion for? What has he given you a burden for? What's that thing that you've always disqualified yourself from stepping into because you just didn't feel like you were good enough to do it? What's your part in this? If we really get this going, the reality is there's going to be people in here that will see brokenness in our world, be burdened by it, they're going to be called to plant a church. That could be you. There could be a seed of that in your heart right now. You might be someone that you want to plant a church, but you want to come and be a part of a church plant. I know a guy who's far from God, but close to you. Who are those people that God has placed you? He's divinely given you access into your life for you to reach. Who is that? How can you start living on mission? What does that look like? What are the steps towards that goal? It doesn't have to be something crazy. It could be a cup of coffee. It could be lunch. It could be dinner. It could be some early morning banter. Whatever it is, what does that look like for you to build that bridge? You may be here today and you aren't a Christian, but you heard Paul say that people are searching and you're just that today. You're searching. You don't know why you're here. You don't know how you ended up here, but life may not be going the way you thought it would. Things are not panning out. You thought they would. You aren't who you want to be today, and you're broken. I want you to know something. The Bible tells us that everything and everyone was made by and for Jesus. The hole in your heart that you can't seem to find anything to satisfy, the answer is Jesus. And today you can start a relationship with him. If you are someone who's interested in doing that, if you feel today moved to do that, if you kind of at the end of yourself and you're like, yeah, that's what I need. What you can do right now in your seat, just in your own heart is pray this prayer. You say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurt. Lead me into my future. I surrender my life to you and your purposes. I ask for your salvation and I commit to following you. If you're someone that prayed that prayer, I just want to ask you today, don't leave without talking to someone. Don't leave without talking and praying with someone that you can ask questions to, that you can kind of learn more of what you just did. Maybe you're someone that didn't pray that prayer, but you want to pray that prayer. Don't leave today without talking to someone. Don't leave today without doing what God is leading you to do. Father, we thank you 
We thank you for being who you are, for giving the church this mission. Lord, all the things we talked about today, we can't do apart from you. And we don't want to assume that we can. Lord, we need you. You have great and big plans for the world to bring the gospel to them, to help them see what they're putting their faith in isn't the answer, but Jesus is. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in faith, to step out in faith, to not settle for the things that we've settled for, but to realize you've called us to more. Lord, would you show us that next step? Would you push us, if you have to, to follow you, to accomplish the mission, God? Would you fill us so much that it would just be the overflow of our lives into other people? That the gospel conversations would be so easy because our lives would be so different. That they would be filled with Jesus so much that people would just be begging to know, what is it that's different? Lord, thank you for the confidence that we have in your promises. The church is going to be okay. You're going to build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you. We praise you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.